Good evening. It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to Community Radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021. I'm Claudio Mendoza, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Right after tonight's National Public Radio headlines and the California Report, Paul Emery talks with hydrogeologist Steve Baker about the proposal to reopen the Idaho-Maryland mine and how it relates to local groundwater. We'll close our newscast with a commentary from Mary McLean. We here at KVMR are grateful to the following business underwriters. Four Paws Animal Clinic, providing medical, dental, surgical services, alternative therapies, and cat boarding for cherished companions on Searles Avenue, Nevada City. Dr. Susan Murphy and staff proudly support KVMR. F-O-U-R-P-A-U-S-E.com And Briar Patch Food Co-op, featuring an in-house deli and bakery, a sustainable meat and fish department, also organic produce from local farms, offering curbside pickup at 290 Sierra College Drive in Grass Valley. Briarpatch.coop. Here are tonight's NPR news headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Local authorities have announced charges against the gunman suspected of killing 10 people at a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, Monday. The 21-year-old man faces 10 counts of first-degree murder. As Matt Bloom from member station KUNC reports, the community is still reeling from the country's latest mass shooting incident. Outside of the store where the shooting took place, hundreds of residents are paying their respects to the victims, laying bouquets of flowers at the base of a chain-link fence now surrounding the entrance. Local pastor Michael Dean taped up a sign reading, Pray for Boulder. He's worried the pandemic may limit how the community mourns the killings. I think people are confused with, you know, everything falling, loosening up. They come outside and then this happens. And so... People are just locking themselves back up again. And so we're here to offer hope because this isn't all there is. A motive for the shooting is still unclear and an investigation is expected to take several days. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom in Boulder. British pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca says it will publish up-to-date results from its major U.S. COVID-19 vaccine trial within 48 hours after health officials publicly criticized the company, saying it used outdated information to show how well its immunization worked. It's just the latest setback for the vaccine, once hailed as a milestone in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. The company initially said its vaccine had demonstrated 78% efficacy based on an interim analysis of data through February 17th. AstraZeneca says it will immediately engage with the independent panel monitoring the trial to share its full analysis. The White House appears to be downplaying reports of North Korean missile tests last weekend, saying such activity will not close the door on dialogue. The Biden administration is planning to host high-level officials from South Korea and Japan next week to talk about next steps, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. North Korea has a familiar menu of provocations when it wants to send a message to the U.S., and last weekend's military activity was on the low end of the spectrum. That's the assessment of two administration officials who briefed reporters on the condition that they not be named. They call it, quote, normal military activity by the North. The Biden officials say they're close to 
to finalizing their policy review, adding that they've learned quite a bit in their talks with Trump administration officials about recent diplomacy. There's been very little contact between Washington and Pyongyang since Trump's second summit with North Korea's leader. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Federal Reserve Board Chair Jerome Powell told lawmakers on Capitol Hill today more needs to be done to limit the damage from the coronavirus pandemic and to promote a full economic recovery. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped 308 points. The Nasdaq was down 149. This is NPR. Colorado has experienced one of the deadliest avalanche seasons in the state's history. On Monday, the state reported 12 its 12th avalanche death of the winter, tying a record set in 1993. Colorado Public Radio's Stina Siegesmore. The Eagle County Sheriff's Office has identified the latest avalanche victim as 37-year-old Gary Smith, a former ski patroller. He died in a backcountry area just beyond Beaver Creek Resort, about 100 miles west of Denver. Spencer Logan is with the Colorado Avalanche Information Center and says the state is still dealing with unstable snow conditions. We're seeing a lot of these big avalanches breaking all the way down to snow near the ground and taking out the entire snowpack. Logan says the increased popularity of backcountry skiing outside of established resort areas has also contributed to avalanche deaths. For NPR News, I'm Stina Sieg in Grand Junction. Use by electric vehicle maker Tesla of in-car cameras to record and transmit video footage of passengers to help develop self-driving technology is raising privacy concerns. That's according to a report in the U.S. magazine Consumer Reports, which says Tesla's approach potentially undermines the safety benefits of driver monitoring designed to alert drivers when they're not paying attention to the road. Automakers, including Ford and GM, of monitoring systems that do not actually record or transmit data or video, but use infrared technology to identify driver eye movements or head positions to warn them they're exhibiting signs of distraction. Oil was down $3.80 a barrel to 57.76 today. This is NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Over the weekend, jobless Californians who couldn't get online to certify their unemployment claims turned to social media to vent their frustrations. Their target was California's Employment Development Department, the state agency that handles unemployment. It blamed the problems on equipment glitches. With more, here's the California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin. First, let's start with the backlog. Late last week, EDD reported over a million people waiting for the seventh week in a row. Next, working through the 1.4 million claims the agency froze for suspected fraud late last year. We learned in February that EDD had cleared around 400,000, but that leaves over 900,000 that could still be in limbo. On a media call earlier this month, EDD's Lori Levy was asked whether the agency had made any progress on those claims. We need to kind of get in and look at all those numbers and get that analysis complete so we can get you some good solid numbers. EDD is now saying it will wait to provide that update until it has finished reviewing all remaining claims from this group. At the same time, countless Californians have reached the one-year mark on their regular unemployment insurance claims, which means they have to refile their applications while the system is already overloaded. Still, that's not all. While so many Californians struggle just to verify their claims, EDD has a whole new layer of logistics to contend with, as it works to distribute stimulus funds across its applicant pool, a task the agency says could take until mid-April, if not later. For the California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Harvin. 
The city of Oakland and Marin County are expected to move forward today on new pilot programs aimed at giving some of their residents a guaranteed income. Oakland officials will be providing details on their program later this morning. They say it will be one of the largest universal basic income programs in the country, distributing monthly payments to hundreds of residents. Meanwhile, in Marin, the County Board of Supervisors is set to vote today on whether to approve funding for a similar project. As part of the Marin program, 125 low-income women would receive $1,000 a month for two years. If approved, the program would launch in May. The plans are similar to the experiment launched in Stockton in 2019, which gave randomly selected residents $500 a month for two years. A study of Stockton's program found that participants had improved financial stability and overall well-being. Support for the California Report comes from the law firm Perkins Coie, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at PerkinsCOIE.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. And Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors, like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. About three weeks ago, we reported on Governor Gavin Newsom's plan to prioritize COVID vaccines for people in poor and underserved communities in the state. So, what's happened since? In the San Joaquin Valley, Maddie Bolaños of Valley Public Radio checked in with community organizations offering vaccination assistance. That's Madeline Harris with the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability. Today, she's knocking on doors in Fairmead, a small community in Madera County, to let residents know about a mobile vaccine clinic coming to the town. She stops outside Mary Ann Moore's home. About a vaccine clinic they're going to do at the school on Sunday. On Sunday? Mm-hmm. Do you have to have an appointment? Or? No, it's on site registration and it's for people who are food and ag workers. As she wedges a flyer through someone's front gate, Harris says residents in communities like Fairmead face a lot of challenges signing up for the vaccine. And a lot of people who are at work when these, you know, links are posted or who don't have internet access or use computers or speak English, aren't able to get those appointments. So going door-to-door eliminates some of those barriers, she says. Despite the state's efforts to reduce disparities in vaccination rates, just 21% of all 14.8 million vaccinations administered to date have gone towards Black and Latino communities. These new initiatives are welcome, Harris says, but they are just one step in the process. She says health officials should continue working with grassroots organizations to reach the people that have been most impacted by COVID. If local governments are going to utilize their existing channels of communications or existing infrastructures to do a project as big as vaccinating the entire you know, eligible population who wants the vaccine, then the same institutional racism that's embedded in those institutions is going to replicate itself with vaccine distribution. 
In Orange Cove, a rural city in the far east corner of Fresno County, another community organization is helping residents with the vaccine process. So Cultiva La Salud is here at the Orange Cove High School at this beautiful day, uh, helping to register community residents. Genoveva Islas is director of Cultiva La Salud, an organization that spent the last year helping Spanish-speaking residents navigate the pandemic. She says sometimes she'll send organizers to local grocery stores or food distribution events in the days leading up to the mobile clinic. It's a great way to capture people, right, and to announce, hey, you're here to pick up food today, but if you're also interested in this vaccine and you're eligible, call this number and we'll help register you. She says the majority of people she's spoken to in rural areas in the San Joaquin Valley are interested in getting the vaccine. Yet many have limited access to health care. So mobile vaccine clinics in areas like these are crucial, she says. We don't have the great public transportation from our county rural communities to the center of Fresno. So coming out and doing these uh, mobile clinics, I think, is the other benefit that people do uh, like and, and want to take advantage of. That's why she says it's a good thing that Newsom is prioritizing vaccinations for underserved communities. She says local organizations are now vaccinating more people. These are the same communities who have consistently been putting their lives at risk for us, right, as farm laborers. And so um, that feels like the right and fair thing to do. She says local organizations will continue working with vaccine providers to bring mobile vaccine clinics to communities that need them. For The California Report, I'm Mari Bolaños. And that is The California Report for Tuesday, March 23rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Nevada County announced today that it has met the state's metrics for the red tier and will move into the red or substantial tier along with Kern and Stanislaw counties. In the red tier, businesses such as restaurants, gyms, and movie theaters will be able to open their doors, albeit at reduced capacity. Restaurants will be allowed to serve guests indoors at 25% capacity or 100 people, whichever is fewer. Gyms will now be able to operate at 10% capacity, and movie theaters at 25% capacity. Retail establishments are limited to 50% capacity indoors. These changes become effective Wednesday, March 24th. Some citizens of Nevada County continue to oppose COVID restrictions of any kind, and last Saturday gathered in a Glenbrook Basin parking lot to take part in a worldwide rally for freedom. The event, billed as a, quote, worldwide demonstration for freedom, peace, and democracy, drew a sizable crowd and included local speakers. Ken Page, owner of Friar Tux, spoke as a representative of the Nevada County Restaurant Coalition, the organization that filed a $1.5 million suit against Nevada County and California state officials. At the rally, Mr. Page told the crowd, quote, We came to the realization that this is good versus evil. And when we filed our lawsuit, that was our message, that this was a battle of good versus evil, end quote. 
On Thursday, March 25th, Nevada County will be hosting a special 30-minute business task force meeting from 4.30 to 5 p.m. to provide updates on the latest state and federal grants and loan programs, as well as changes to the county's tier status and what that means for local businesses. For more information or to register, visit mynevadacounty.com slash 3143 slash business dash resources. And now, taking a look at local weather, in Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight clear with a low around 34. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 60. In the Truckee and Lake Tahoe region, tonight clear with a low around 19 and blustery, with gusts as high as 30 miles per hour. A lake wind advisory remains in effect until 5 a.m. tomorrow, which will be mostly sunny with a high near 47. And in Woodland and Sacramento, tonight clear with a low around 45. Wednesday will be beautiful and sunny with a high near 71. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Uh, Steve, uh, today we're going to talk about the Idaho-Maryland mine. Seems like every four or five or six years, here it comes again. Another group, another proposal, and and, uh, let's uh, talk about the proposed opening up. What do you know about it? Well, you know, the Idaho-Maryland mine just came across my desk this past weekend. And so I I thought that, you know, this would be a very timely uh, moment to to talk about it. Rise Gold is a publicly traded U.S. corporation, and they now own the Idaho-Maryland gold mine properly. It's located, for those of you who are not familiar with it, uh, it's immediately east of Grass Valley. Now, this company has completed uh, during the last, I don't know how many months and years, but uh, 20,000 meters of exploratory drilling. They've been doing a lot of work to see what's down the hole. And they've done a lot of environmental studies as well. So at this moment, a permit's being pursued. Now, there's a backstory to this mine, right? During the gold rush, uh, there was a specific vein. It was referred to as the Idaho One vein. It produced 935,000 ounces of gold. To all you... uh, Gold panners out there, how long would it take you to, <laughs> to capture, you know, even a couple ounces? <laughs> it, it's, that's a lot of gold. And it became known at that time as the deepest mine in the world and the greatest gold producer on the continent. It was big time. Early 20th century, they did well again. They produced 121,000 ounces of gold. And that was per year. And the mine went through a forced closure, unfortunately, you know, during the early 40s. I'm sure World War II somehow uh, uh, was a part of that. And then uh, bringing us up to a more recent, in the early uh, 2000s, Emperor Gold attempted to open up this same mine, Idaho Maryland mine. And their their description of the project was that they were going to mine gold, of course, but they also were going to operate a ceramics plant that would produce ceramic tiles from the mine waste. But unfortunately, you know, for them, uh, that didn't work either. So here we go. We're back at the start again. Rise Gold is trying to open up the Idaho Maryland mine. That's a huge amount of gold. Uh, In your opinion, they must uh, have uh, information that shows there's still a lot of gold left in there to to acquire. Well, I can tell you this. It's very expensive drilling cores, 
and putting 20,000 meters of hole in the ground, they must have uh, some very good reasons uh, that are related to finding a lot of gold in this ground. There's a lot down there. It's always been speculated there's a lot left down the hole. So what does the community think about this? And has there been, you know, responses from community groups and uh, organizations about this proposal? Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> we're, in, we're in Nevada County. Uh, Ralph uh, Cyberstein, uh, Community Environmental Advocates Foundation, he wrote an opinion on this that I, I saw something that was uh, dated March 12th, so it's somewhat recent. He explained that, uh, you know, the mine's footprint is something like four square miles. It's, it's a pretty good-sized footprint. And if you define it, I mean, think about this. It, it's, its northern perimeter is near the edges of Glenbrook Basin. Okay, where the McDonald's is and all that that stuff. Uh, south, uh, if you go south, it's Highway 174. East, it's underneath the entire airport. And then west, if you're at the hospital, you're standing right on top of the Idaho Maryland Mines uh, perimeter on, on that western side. Uh, as far as issues go, uh, he talks about blasting. Blasting's an issue. And the way they characterize blasting uh, is, as far as the acceptable conditions, if, if you were having acceptable conditions, there may still be less than 8% of the people who have complaints that would be concerned. Okay, so, and, and then the other thing is uh, blasting is assuming that it'll happen at least 500 feet away from residences. But, but you know, what happens when the workings are changing? You, you're expanding your, your digging, and now you're getting closer to some of these properties. So I, I don't know if they've really worked that out yet. And then the big, the, one of the big things is our wells. And there's a, Ralph saying that there's a great concern about the wells. The predicted groundwater levels were modeled using a computer, and they estimated something like 5 to 10 feet of, of, uh, of possible drawdown uh, created by uh, the dewatering of this mine on individual wells. They predict about 152 wells out of 334 of them are going to be experiencing 1 to 10 feet of drop in their water levels. So there's some real uh, concerns related to that. And, of course, we have this remembrance of, of the gold mine that was out on San Juan Ridge, okay, San Juan Ridge mine, and that caused a lot of water quality and quantity issues in 12 different wells, including a school that's still getting, according to Ralph, uh, still being delivered uh, trucked water to their location. So, Steve, the uh, concerns of people that have wells uh, in the outer, you know, not people in Grass Valley because they obviously have domestic water. But uh, those are serious concerns that they must must have. But what are the specific uh, uh, concerns that they have and how do they word it? Well, I mean, let's look at the backdrop here. OK, most of us who are on wells uh, are that's our sole source of water. We don't have a backup. So we're, we're extra sensitive about losing our supply and, and having things like this happening, which could compromise that supply. Uh, we're also, another thing is, for all of us, we're in fractured rock environments. We're not in the porous environment like the Central Valley. So the behavior of, of groundwater is very different up here than it is down below, where it's much, much more predictable. No one really knows how underground fractures are interconnected. Okay, so your personal well impact is uncertain. And by having a mine dewatering adds to that uncertainty. Another thing, as as the workings of the mine are expanding, they're going to new places underground. Who knows? There, there are uncertainties attached to that, too. And uh, fractures are going to be connected to new mine, mine uh, shafts. And, and, uh, and you'll have these interconnections. Are you going to dewater, end up dewatering a greater part of the area? And is that going to affect your well? Again, your personal well 
is impacted by these uncertainties. We have to be careful. And and then one of the things that I looked at when I, I actually uh, submitted comments on groundwater wells when the Emperor Gold EIR was written, and one of my concerns it was uh, after looking at the historic mines in our region, it became clear to me that there could be interconnection between mines. So is the footprint that has been defined by this uh, company for the Idaho Maryland mine actually the size that we need to be protective of, the areas above it? Or is it larger? Uh, sometimes the, the uh, workings of previous mines that were done 100-some years ago were never mapped. And so if we accidentally connect those as the accidents happened, these, these mishaps happened in the San Juan Ridge where they didn't know about a fracture, and all of a sudden they had uh, a huge problem with, with water develop. Same could be here. So, so one of the strongest things is know, know your water. Know what's going on in, in your own well, and, and that requires you to take, take charge, really. Thank you, Steve. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. Next, a commentary from Mary McLean. When Nevada County announced its egress-ingress fire safety project earlier this month, I felt so encouraged to hear that hazardous vegetation would be removed from 200 miles of county-maintained roads. The project aims to allow residents to evacuate more quickly in an emergency and allow firefighters better access to prevent structure fires. Yay! This project does not include the stretch of Highway 174 that leads out of town from Grass Valley. The Empire Mine State Park borders 174 from about Race Street up to East Empire Street. It is thick with brush and downed trees. Drive by and see for yourself. Two years ago, I presented public comment to the Board of Supervisors about hazardous vegetation on the boundaries of the Empire Mine State Park. In response, they wrote a letter dated February 26, 2019, to the Governor and CAL FIRE, among others. They addressed evacuation routes including Highway 174, stating, and this is a quote, it is imperative that swift action be taken to ensure these roadways are made as safe as possible for first responder ingress and community egress. These state highways are in dire need of immediate hazardous fuels mitigation, and in many places these roads are only two lanes in width. In the event of a catastrophic wildfire necessitating a mass evacuation, these narrow overgrown roadways would serve as perilous evacuation routes. End quote. The state park forester recently told me there is no timeline for this project due to other priorities and a limited budget. So I'm reaching out once again to advocate for action with the Grass Valley City Council and Supervisor Dan Miller. The best option I've found is the Governor's Forest Management Task Force that addresses fuel reduction projects in California. 
It was recently used with the Ponderosa West Grass Valley Defense Zone project. How about getting this Highway 174 project in the queue? The forester says it is a particularly complex project for various reasons. And yet, in its current state, it would serve as a perilous evacuation route indeed. Again, quoting the supervisor's letter, Given what occurred in the town of Paradise, we all have seen what happens when families are trapped on clogged roads engulfed in flames. The state park needs partners to get this done. Please, ask your elected representative to champion this project. My name is Mary McLean, and I live in Grass Valley. The views expressed on this show are those of the speakers only and are not necessarily those of KVMR, our board, staff, volunteers, or contributors. That's our newscast. Stay tuned for Embracing the Journey at 6.30 and at 7, Democracy Now! Tomorrow night on The Sages Among Us, host Brian Buckley interviews Grass Valley Mayor Ben Aguilar. Thanks for listening and have a great evening. I'll see you tomorrow at 6. Ha <laughs> ha